If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me as ever are Spike's deputy editor Tom Slater. Hello, hello. And Spike columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, we'll discuss Boris proroguing Parliament, the lecturer investigated for quoting James Baldwin, and I talk to Michael Schellenberger about the Amazon fires. But before we begin, I'd like to tell you about an exciting event. In October, we'll be doing a special live episode of The Brendan O'Neill Show, Brendan will be joined on stage by Rod Liddell. You will not want to miss this. It's part of an event called Podcast Live, which is on the 5th of October between 2.30 and 3.30pm in London. Tickets are now available at podcastlive.com. There are two types of tickets. You can buy tickets for just the Brendan O'Neill show, or you can buy an all-day ticket, which includes access to all of the other podcasts at Podcast Live. Whichever ticket you choose, whether it's all day or single show, when you go to podcastlive.com, make sure you click the link below the Brendan O'Neill Show logo, as that's the only way you can guarantee a seat for the show. So that's the Brendan O'Neill Show with Rod Little at Podcast Live on the 5th of October. Don't miss it. Now, on with the Spike Podcast. The Queen has given her permission to suspend Parliament. Suspending Parliament is not acceptable. It's not on. There will be ample time for MPs to debate uh, the EU, to debate Brexit and uh, all the other issues. It's dictatorship. I think today we'll go down in history as the day UK democracy died. As the Brexit deadline looms, Boris Johnson has prorogued Parliament to limit the time MPs will have to block a no-deal Brexit. Remainer MPs have blasted the move as undemocratic and a constitutional outrage, Opposition leaders Jeremy Corbyn and Joe Swinson demanded to see the Queen to block the prorogation. The EU Parliament's Guy Verhofstadt denounced the move as sinister. Protests were organised outside the Houses of Parliament calling to stop the coup. Tom, are we really in the midst of a coup? No, is the short answer to that. Now, the first thing to say, of course, is that Boris Johnson proroguing Parliament is a cynical and arguably undemocratic move. The clear intention here is to try to squeeze the parliamentary timetable as we're running up to the October the 31st deadline, make it that little bit more difficult for the Remainers in Parliament who seem to just about be getting their acts together, just give them less time in order to either legislate against no deal or to try and topple Johnson in some sort of no confidence vote. That is very much clear. And I think using these kinds of wheezes to try and limit the time that Parliament can sit and discuss things is something that no Brexiteer should um, support. All that being said, I think it's important to note that this is not the um, coup, the constitutional outrage that many people are making it out to be. Um, The upshot of most of this is that Parliament will probably have something like four or five fewer days to sit than they would otherwise because they were going to break up for the party conference season. You know, this is not as people were talking about a while ago, you know, shutting down Parliament for weeks and weeks on end, just running down the clock until no deal. This is something far more mild than that. And I think the kind of over-the-top catastrophism, the talk of tin pot dictatorships and all the rest (laughs) of it is very much overdone. And frankly, whilst um, Spike has criticised and will continue to criticise Johnson for this particularly cynical move, I think it's fair to say that it's flushed out the deeply 
anti-democratic, cynical and hypocritical nature of the other side. You know, yesterday we had all of these Remainer MPs and commentators talking in the language of democracy. You know, you had Joe Swinson saying he was stealing the people's voice. This is a woman who very recently said that even if there was a second referendum and she lost it, she wouldn't accept the outcome of that either. Um, Again, this move has again demonstrated how completely mixed up and unprincipled the Labour Party is. You had Jeremy Corbyn, an alleged Republican, demanding an immediate audience with the Queen to try and convince her to um, not accept um, Johnson's instruction to prorogue Parliament. You know, you wonder if the next thing he's going to do is go and talk to the generals to see if they might (laughs) intervene on his behalf. And the protests from left-wingers and people on the Remain side in general were just absolutely shameless you know people were talking about standing up for 100 years of democracy and i just think if you if over the past three years you said nothing when the unelected house of lords tried to block brexit you said nothing when millionaires launched legal challenges to try to frustrate brexit you said nothing as voters brexit voters working class people who were more likely to vote leave than not were traduced as idiots and racist and told that they shouldn't have been able to vote in the first place. If you said nothing about that, but getting really upset about Parliament maybe being closed for four or five more days, then to put it lightly, your moral compass is severely screwed up. Absolutely. Uh, Ella? Yeah, well, I mean, the whole point that everyone's missing in relation to Johnson's move, they're so shocked by it, not because of their concern for democracy, because they think that it's going to stop them from stopping no deal. I think anyone sensible knows that really, I mean, you can't really tell what Johnson's motives are. They could be anything. But I think an educated guest would say that it's about passing a really bad hashed version of the withdrawal agreement, perhaps without the backstop. So that's why we're concerned about it. (laughs) Never mind democratic process. Brexiters should be wary about this because it's it's, Johnson's not doing this on a principled um, stance to get Brexit. He's doing it to secure the kind of Frankenstein's monster of Theresa May's deal to get the heat off his back, basically. So this is not good for anyone. But as Tom says, the other side has, I mean, just the shameless arrogance and hypocrisy and hypocrisy of it is staggering. On Tuesday, when every anti-Brexiteer MP gathered together in church house um, to sign the statement in this very dramatic, very performative kind of nature, you had John McDonnell up on stage with this very dramatic lighting across his face, saying that this was a you know signing statement, saying this was a democratic outrage, calling it a coup. And then people like Anna Subri saying, um, you know, his- the history books will determine the courage of people like me and people who are ready to... I mean, Subri continuously talks about the history books. It's like she's desperate to make sure that she's recorded. But the point is the hypocrisy of these people to suggest that they are democratic defenders when what they're doing is, as we all know, trying to stop a democratic vote is outrageous. But also just the kind of the lies at the heart of it. So they pretend that this is all about taking a stance on democracy in the abstract in this sense. But then if you just take one look at the protests that were outside Parliament yesterday, there was a group of people sat around drinking French wine, eating baguettes and cheese and saying this is an outrage. It's not about democracy, it's about Brexit. Mm. It's the same old, we're European, great, progressive, and you're backwards, and they see Johnson's very much in that camp. So it's kind of a plague on both your houses situation where you you don't want to back Johnson because what he's doing is cynical and is not in the best interests of Brexiteers or Democrats. On the other hand, 
you just really want to lay into this side who's pretending to be democratic, but in fact is just showing the absolute, the depths of depravity of British politics at the moment, where you just have bare-faced liars trying to claim like they've got the moral high ground. Well, yeah, exactly. And and if anyone is going to be um, labelled a coup plotter, it surely has to be their side. I mean, we think about not just the church house desk declaration this week, but also the talk of installing governments of national unities, all women cabinets to overthrow Brexit. This week, the former head of the civil service, um, Lord Kirkslade, called on um, civil servants to consider serving, in quote marks, the country instead of uh, the government. And, you know, all this talk of the national interest and serving the country, of course, means serving the interests of the elites by blocking Brexit and remaining in the European Union. But, uh, but then there is also... I suppose there is this escalation of um, political language and Mm. you just think sometimes the use of language is so out of control with dictatorships and fascism and Mm. hard right. No, it's ridiculous. And it's really interesting as well how people aren't really recognising their own kind of cognitive dissonance (laughs) on this issue. I think two things really summed that up for me, one of which was some of the placards which had been printed up and handed out at the protest yesterday. So something to the effect of save democracy, stop Brexit, Mm. which is an interesting idea. Um, And also the changing attitudes towards the Queen over the day, um, which was really interesting. Because at first you had this, um, you know, you had everyone demanding an immediate audience with you know uh, Jeremy Corbyn, Joe Swinson, etc., hoping that she would do something. Which you know, people talk about Boris Johnson effectively pulling the Queen into politics by asking her to prorogue Parliament. But the idea that rip up you know centuries of precedent, <laughs> whereby she would effectively um, refuse the instruction of uh, a democratically elected. Um, that she would refuse the instruction of her prime minister is absolutely ridiculous. Then later on in the day, abolish the monarchy starts trending. So yeah. there's this kind of really, you know, this democracy is not what they're interested in. Stopping Brexit is really um, what they're interested in. And I think, again, political language is an important point because when these people use the word democracy, they're using a very specific definition of it, particularly if it's MPs. What they mean is the power that our system gives them if they, so, if they want to take this liberty to frustrate what even their own voters might have voted for. That's what they mean by um, democracy. And, you know, even if, you know, we could get into the whole discussion, of, as we have many times in this podcast, about what is the role of MPs in relation to Brexit? Is it, you know, the Paynites versus the Burkeans and all the rest of it? I think all of that's largely irrelevant, given most of these people voted to have the referendum in the first place. But I think there's just something really disingenuous and incredibly insidious is that they're all operating with this definition of democracy that effectively means we should have the right to do the opposite of what the people want. Yeah. Um, they should come clean about this. They should make clear that what they want to do is stop Brexit by any means necessary. And I think anyone, no matter how they voted, should give these people no truck, no leeway to make these kinds of arguments, because I don't think they're even convincing the people who are making them. Well, I think I think what it highlights is that basically every institution um, is praised or rejected, basically, on the basis of whether it serves their interests or not. So, you know, not only have we, have you, as you said, the monarchy was useful in the morning when it could be used to block Brexit, terrible in the afternoon when... Um, it's used to prorogue Parliament. We've seen the same with Parliament itself. No Remainer gave two figs about parliamentary sovereignty before the Brexit vote until they realised that it could be instrumentalised against um, against the vote for Brexit. We've seen the way the courts have been brought into, um, into blocking Brexit. We've seen the way the Constitution, the idea of the Constitution is wielded to say that everything you know, that leads towards Brexit is unconstitutional. But then Remainers are prepared to rip up the Constitution and the parliamentary rule book um, to block Brexit. So everything is entirely hypocritical. The view of every institution and move depends on whether it's in the service of blocking Brexit or not. Exactly. They say, well, we'll do backroom deals and we'll plot to stop it. But then when the backroom deals happen on the other side, they get upset. There was talk 
um, this year about refusing to back any of the kind of different other policies in relation to parliamentary procedure, not allowing any spending policies to go through, shutting down Parliament mm-hmm. that way, mm. basically not paying fair. All of this stuff happens when it's on their terms, but it's when the other side's terms when it's trying to benefit Brexit, although, I mean, not a huge amount of parliamentary process at the moment has been trying to benefit Brexit, benefit the withdrawal agreement maybe, then they throw their toys out of the pram. And it's also interesting in relation to language. I mean, I've been just fascinated by this phrase the people's parliament that's being used (laughs) (laughs) just well this is the church house declaration yeah the absurdity just even even on their terms the absurdity of using that phrase when what you're doing is so obviously against the people it's just just maths Mm. in terms of being against a majority you cannot use the phrase people's parliament but i think the thing that we have to recognize moving forward with how to get out of this is to recognise the quite frightening arrogance that's happening at the moment because, really, I think that anti-Brexit parliamentarians feel really emboldened. And that's the worst thing about Johnson's Mm. move, is what you wrote in your column this week, Tom. They now have something to rail against when, as before, actually, I think the the more that time had gone on and the more that Brexit was being delayed, the more people being frustrated, their position of either revoking or a second referendum was getting less likely. Mm. Now everything is up for grabs, and potentially that's exciting because what we need is change. On the other hand... The arrogance of these anti-Brexit MPs shows that they really are going to stop at nothing to thwart democracy, and that's not something to be taken lightly. I completely agree with that point, and I think that's one of the things that is so um, irritating, as you say, about Boris Johnson making this move, because it does hand in the moral high ground. But also at the same time, I think, going back to a point that Ella made at the beginning, Brexiteers who are celebrating this proroguing move need to be very, very careful about what it is that they're supporting here. Um, there's been a lot of there's been this assumption that what Boris Johnson is really trying to do is to deliver a clean Brexit to deliver a no deal in some sort of um, way there's very little indication that that the very least is not his best case scenario he's still talking about renegotiating the withdrawal agreement number 10 confirmed this week that they are only seeking changes to the backstop which as we've said many times on this podcast and on spiked is the only the start of what's wrong with the withdrawal agreement Um, and it's also quite clear from the letter that Boris Johnson set that his plan here is to squeeze parliamentary time to try and get some sort of renegotiation sealed at the um, EU Council on the 17th and 18th of October and then to effectively do what Theresa May always failed to do which was try to bounce MPs into backing the withdrawal agreement so to Brexiteers celebrating proroguing this week um, I think they should watch themselves because they might they might in effect give away their right to complain tomorrow when these kind of very cynical very undemocratic moves might actually be put to the end of um thwarting Brexit, but from within Boris's camp rather than from without. Hi, it's Ella Whelan here. I'd just like to take a break from the show to say thank you for everyone who's been giving us donations. Your generosity really means a lot and it goes a long way to help Spike keep going and growing. So to those of you who already give thanks... And if you're thinking about donating, that's really brilliant. One-offs can go a long way, but what really helps is if you think about giving monthly. Even £5 a month can really help. It's really easy to do. You just head to spiked-online.com, click on the big red donate button and fill in your details. So thanks again, and now let's get back to the show. A professor at the New School in New York has been investigated for using the N-word in one of her classes. Laurie Sheck, also a Pulitzer Prize-winning poet, 
wasn't racially abusing one of her students. She was quoting the great African-American writer, James Baldwin. But a white student immediately protested, saying it was never okay for white people to use the N-word and that the new school's teaching programme was altogether too white. After student complaints of discrimination, a formal investigation was launched. Ella, what does this incident tell us about the state of our universities? Well, it tells us something very serious that the dominance of the kind of woke culture seems to be having some very serious effects to the extent to which university professors can be suspended or investigated for carrying out their job, for doing Mm. something very proper in relation to racism in this case, which was an intellectual investigation into the nuances of how someone like James Baldwin's writing and thought and ideas had been interpreted. So actually what she was asking was a really important question, which is why had the 2016 documentary I Am Not Your Negro changed the word nigger to Negro and what was going on there and what ramifications had Mm. did that have for anti-racism? It's a very important Mm. discussion. Because the the quote from Baldwin originally used the the full-blown word, yeah. Originally used the full-blown n-word and I mean just the madness of the fact that this was a white student who didn't just say I don't think a professor should ever use the n-word but actually had said a different professor had told me so had kind of soaked up this woke supposedly woke ideology of completely putting context out of the question completely ignoring the fact that she was in a situation in which she should be listening to her professor and challenging herself and talking about racism and just making this blind assumption that Laurie Sheck was in fact being racist or or discriminatory on a kind of unconscious level. And uh, Aaron Gonzalez wrote, wrote a really great column on Spiked for this where he detailed that this wasn't the only case in which this has happened. Actually, this is happening quite frequently, that a professor in Princeton who used the N-word in a class on hate speech um, and after students complained, walked out, the course got cancelled, and that a law professor at Emory University was investigated for using the N-word in a discussion of a civil rights case. So, I mean, is are we just going to wipe out the fact that the N-word exists, wipe out the fact that that exists in a historical context, and are we now allowed in universities to talk about racism mm. anymore? Because that actually seems to me a far more problematic situation than occasionally using a an offensive and sensitive word in a context of intellectual investigation. Another example I stumbled across, which was fascinating, which was just in February, there was another James Baldwin case. (laughs) So it was at a university in um, Minnesota where um, a professor had assigned James Baldwin's The Fire next time. um, And there was, again, the N-word was quoted. There was also sent around after the after the seminar because it got into a discussion about when it isn't isn't appropriate to refer to that word in an academic context set around sent around a couple of essays one of which by Tarnahisi coach you know nothing too <laughs> anti-woke in that respect and again he was um he was suspended over this so it's just really fascinating that even if an academic can't even quote a literary work something's gone very very wrong here and I think also the, the cases that Ella's just outlined from Aaron's piece are very instructive as well about how if you have this kind of phobia of talk of using certain words of talking about things in plain language of even just referring to the details of a civil rights case or whatever it is despite the fact that these sort of speech policers and these word phobes claim to care so much about racism and that's really their main concern when they're going about policing language it actually makes the discussion of these topics it makes getting to the root of some of these problems 
much, much harder. And it kind of reminds me of the article that um, Jeannie Suit wrote, who was a law professor, and raised the point that um, because of this new culture of offence, because of this new sensitivity culture, you had law students who were having to effectively opt out of classes on things like rape. So the next generation of potentially lawyers who would take on the issue of sexual violence in the law profession, you know, more of these people are effectively rendering themselves incapable of yeah. playing their part in help in helping in this particular social issue because they can't even begin to discuss it this case kind of in tandem with some of the other ones that um, Aaron brought up just again brings that point back through to the fore it feels like yeah I think that I think that's right there, there are these actually these are competing demands actually that students are making because on the one hand you know the curriculum is too white um too eurocentric um we need to learn more about black history we need more black writers mm. on um you know English courses but at the same time if you actually encounter um any historical black writing that actually details racism and you know talks about real racism then you're going to hear the n word and you're mm. going to hear things that you find offensive so it, it's it's almost an impossible demand for um professors to be able to to teach this stuff it was particularly fascinating as well the fact that not only was it a white student in this case who complained about this stuff but during a discussion about james baldwin a very acclaimed african-american writer goes on this tangent about how the curriculum at the new school is mm. too white and yeah. you just think, again it's this kind of ridiculous situation where you spend so much time talking about what it is and isn't appropriate to say that you don't actually get to the meat of talking about what these people claim to actually be interested in and i i think you know what what's kind of worrying is that what people want people clearly want to hear more about black history but they want a kind of sanitized version and it was really interesting that you know while um it's great that the case against uh laurie Sheck was dropped after the intervention of um fire the foundation for individual rights and in education a free speech uh, lobby group but she basically had no internal help from on along the way you know her faculty union who you'd expect to stand up for her said that well what she really needed to do was um modify her teaching and mm. you know be more conciliatory add trigger warnings perhaps even change the curriculum so as to avoid um causing offence we can't, we can't even go into discussions about race and racism. We're blocked off before we can even begin talking about it. Exactly, and that's why I think it's it's really important that the student who reported this and who caused all the fuss was white. I mean, I think it would still have been wrong if the student was black and had an issue with this because it would still be a case of free expression and being able to think openly. But the fact that they were white and had a problem with this... It's, it's exactly what you said, Fraser, about wanting to sanitise things. I mean, why are you offended as a white person by the N-word? If it makes you feel uncomfortable, perhaps there's a reason for that. And the the desire to sort of sanitise and neutralise something like a class on James Baldwin from a white perspective, I mean, doesn't that ring alarm bells? It, even, <laughs> it, like, yeah. you know, from, from a kind of... This is what happens with a huge amount of woke politics is that it's putting actually the uh the oppressors in inverted comm commas the kind of the virtue signaling white people center stage because yeah. it's all about me i'm putting myself up as a kind of whipping myself um by complaining by you know saying that i'm such a terrible white person and that the curriculum's too white and it's all about you it's all about white person and i kind of wonder what some of the black students in that class might have thought about that kind of quite disgusting display of uh, virtue signaling and attention seeking. So at the heart of this, there's also something really uh, quite dark going on, which is the uh, the ownership of these kind of discussions and the ownership of this politics by white students who were so desperate to be woke that they're essentially shutting off discussion about important issues for both black and white students. 
You're listening to the Spike Podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. If you get this podcast on iTunes, why not give us a rating and a review? It really helps new listeners find the show. The fires in the Amazon rainforest have caused international outrage over the past few weeks. Politicians, celebrities and the media have warned of an impending apocalypse. They say we're seeing record fires and record deforestation. They say the Amazon is the lungs of the world, that it provides vital oxygen for us to breathe. Our house is on fire, said President Macron at the G7 summit in Biarritz. Only none of this is true. I spoke to environmental writer and founder of Environmental Progress, Michael Schellenberger, to find out more. What you're about to hear is an edited extract of a longer conversation we had, which you can read by going to spiked-online.com. I started off by asking Schellenberger what everyone gets wrong about the Amazon fires. Um, mostly everything. <laughs> I mean, I think the first thing people should understand is that there has been a huge decline in deforestation since its peak in the early 2000s. So the context is we're still, you know, 75 or 80 percent less than the peak. Um, it, it, the other thing is that the deforestation has actually been going up in recent years. It didn't start under this president, but clearly much of this response from the Western media is a reaction to Bolsonaro, not, a, not really just about what's happening on the ground. We've certainly seen much bigger um, environmental impacts occur in the past with much less media attention. And then the other big issue is just that the Amazon is not the lungs of the world. Um, it doesn't produce 20% of our oxygen. We don't need it for oxygen. You know, those of us that care about the natural environment, which is basically most people, <laughs> um, have a lot of reasons why we want to save the Amazon or at least protect a bunch of it. But the idea that we need it for oxygen production is a myth. This is just sort of some basic plant science. You know, the Amazon uses about as much oxygen as it produces through a process called respiration, which is the, which is the process of, of pulling nutrients out of the soil into the plant and which accompanies photosynthesis. So there's a lot of reasons for it. But, I mean, basically, you know, since the 50s and 60s, after conservationists realized that they could get a lot more media attention by telling people that, the, that environmental problems weren't just environmental problems that they should care about because they love the environment, but that they were really problems that threatened apocalypse, the end of the world. They've been doing this with basically every problem. Um, and honestly, I find it sort of both, it's manipulative and offensive, and, and I think it's sort of sad, a sad commentary on the cynicism of many environmentalists, many environmental scientists, you know, who think that, that really they can't get people to care about nature and they only care about themselves. What's the danger in exaggerating the Amazon fires? Well, the big one is happening right now, which is that the president for public relations needs felt the need to send the military in. <laughs> um, you know, which, as one of my sources points out, it frames the problem as though it's a problem of illegal activity. There's a picture that gets presented of the of like these fires are being created by sort of vandals and criminals from sort of outside the forest. You know, 30 million people live in the Amazon. 
you know, the extent to which Western media and environmentalists ever point to uh, the people living in the Amazon, they always end up pointing to the indigenous people. And there's, but the indigenous people are just one million of the 30 million people in the Amazon. You know, there's just a lot of normal Brazilian, you know, descendants of slaves, mixed race people who are are trying to make a living there. And they're not all good. They're not all bad. They're people that are developing the area in the same way that the Europeans developed Europe and the Americans developed the United States. And, you know, if we want to protect more of the natural environment, we're going to have to work with those people, not vilify and demonize them. What do you think is motivating the alarmism, especially coming from Western leaders like President Macron? I think there's something else going on there, which is that there truly is a effort to represent national European interests, economic interests over Brazilian interests. So, I mean, I think one of the most interesting things I discovered in my reporting on the Amazon is that Macron's own farmers, there's, he did a lot of resistance to the, the deal between the EU and Brazil to import a lot of Brazilian food. That makes total sense when you think about it. So... You know, Macron sort of seems like he's doing something that might allow him to not engage in this free trade deal with Brazil. And maybe he should. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not some, like, rah-rah, everything has to be free trade. You know, I think free trade has been great for, you know, I think trade has been great for Brazil in many ways. Um, It's obviously had some negative consequences, but I do think... You know, it's the, I think it's the stuff that you guys are so good about. It's, this, it's the moralizing in service of an immoral agenda. <laughs> or, or I should say the moralizing in service of, of a self-interested agenda. You know, because I think that the, I think what's unethical about moralizing is the ways in which it's a, it's a, um, it's a hidden, it's a, it's a strategy to hide one's self-interest behind altruism. And I think that's really problematic. Do you think that other environmental issues are used in this same way? Oh, of course. The two big environmental issues, climate change and and deforestation, in both of them, you have the rich world saying to the developing world, oh yeah, you know how we developed through deforestation and fossil fuel consumption? You're going to not be able to do either of those. Oh yeah, it just so happens. That um, and uh, and that, that we have science to show why you have to stay poor, right? I mean, what a scam, right? Like, I mean, I'm fascinated by you guys, um, and I think we're similar in the sense that we're post-Marxists, right? We're post-socialists, so you still retain the the suspicion, this the the uh, what do they call it? The hermeneutics of suspicion, <laughs> where. When somebody's out there talking about how to make the world a better place and why we all have to do this stuff together, it's worth asking yourself whether that's something that they're really advocating or whether they're really advocating a kind of control or a kind of power move, um, that there's a hidden agenda there or not so hidden um, that's being dressed up as altruism. The real climate hoax is not that climate change isn't happening. That's ridiculous. Of course, there's climate change. Um, The real hoax is the ways in which climate change has been used to advance an agenda by rich nations 
really to keep developing nations down, to, to deprive them of resources, to thwart their, their, their competitiveness internationally. Not a conspiracy, just a natural outcome of powerful countries acting on their self-interest and doing so in ways that you can talk about in a polite company without sounding like you're an oppressive colonialist. Thank you for listening to the Spike Podcast. We'll be back next week. And in the meantime, for more great Spike content or to make a donation, just visit spikes-online.com.